the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to you. Good to have you on board this edition of Lifeline and uh, welcome you to this Thursday edition for the 29th of October. My goodness, we're already a third through the final quarter of the year. And I guess for so many of us, the year can't end soon enough. Interesting sort of cauldron, pun intended, between the elections, fear over what the outcome will be, ballot counting, when we will know the results, COVID-19, the markets, of course, have been absolutely stir-crazy. Three and a half point across the board drop yesterday, as you know, between the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500. A bit of recovery today, though not anything significant. Pat Fatucci will join us tonight at 5.15 to give us a bit of an update and um, hopefully allow us to breathe a little bit uh, deeper here. I know it seems to be troubling at the moment, what between COVID, the markets, the election, and uh, holidays just around the corner, and how's all that going to work out? Well, a lot of it, of course, helps to increase the anxiety level. Dr. Greg Jantz is going to join us. He is the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, best-selling author, expert in the arena of anxiety disorders. And we'll talk a bit about the anxiety that I think we're all feeling in relationship to what's going on in the news these days. How do you turn off, unplug, and breathe deep? We'll talk about that with Dr. Greg Jantz later on in tonight's program. Also... Saturday, as you know, is Halloween. To participate or not to participate? Oh, and certainly COVID is a consideration there. But what about the broader issue of whether or not parents of children, Christian parents, should encourage their kids to get involved with Halloween? What are some of the spiritual aspects behind this annual event? Well, we'll talk about that with evangelistic journalist Billy Hallowell, almost Halloween, but Hallowell, who's written a new book called Playing with Fire, newly published by Thomas Nelson, and we'll get to that later on uh, here in the first hour of the show. I wanted to take a couple of minutes to uh, hit some of the highlights. I promised you yesterday we would continue forging through the propositions. One of the ones, number 14, easy one to remember because it'll be the first one on your ballot is one which reauthorizes bonds that would continue so-called stem cell research here in California, authorizing $5.5 billion in state bonds. So they borrow the money. We as taxpayers pay it back to the lenders with interest. You ever want to know how to think about bonds? Anytime you see the word bond on a ballot measure, think of the word bondage. Because by the time you borrow the money, pay it back with interest, 
it would have been cheaper for California taxpayers just to say, hey, we're increasing taxes by $5.5 billion. But somehow when it's a bond measure and it doesn't, in a sense, directly impact voters and taxpayers, though it really does, it's almost economic sleight of hand. This would set aside, again, $5.5 billion. This is going to cost the taxpayer in interest alone $260 million a year for the next 30 years. Your yes vote on the measure means that the state will sell these bond measures to um, go into further so-called stem cell research. It, of course, raises significant bioethical questions. Um, we've spent billions of dollars on this, and so far the results have been less than stellar, and in many regards it is simply helping to fill the coffers of a handful of research organizations while we have not really seen the kind of results that so-called stem cell research had promised, um, there is the bioethical question behind it all. And so from a pro-life perspective, we would recommend a no vote on Proposition, 5, uh, sorry, proposition 14. Prop 15 is essentially a way to... Uh, unravel the old Proposition 13 of the 1970s that put caps and restrictions on the amount of money that the state and local municipalities and counties could charge in property taxes. Californians were getting eaten alive by property taxes, so this capped it and restricts the increase to, I think, 2% of your home's um, evaluation per year. And this allows Californians, particularly in their golden years, to stay in their homes. Otherwise, can you imagine if you bought a house, say, 20 years ago for 200000 today it's worth a million bucks. Well, <coughs> property taxes on something of that sort would run you upwards of $18,000 a year. Even though you didn't spend a million, you didn't buy the home for a million, but now that it's worth a million, you pay a million in value in property taxes. And imagine what would happen to families that are trying to budget on a fixed income. So Prop 15 is a sleight of hand. What it says is we're not going to touch residential property. We'll do it only to commercial properties. They would be taxed on current market value instead of purchase price, which means most commercial properties worth more than $3 million, and that's probably all of them, or a good significant portion of them, will go up significantly so. This is essentially a $12 billion a year tax increase. And of course, those increased costs will be passed on to the renters of said commercial properties, malls, strip malls, stores, things of that sort. And they, in turn, if they don't go out of business, will pass the increased expenses on to you and me. In the middle of one of the most significant economic crises that we have seen since 1929. A stroke of genius to even put this on 
the ballot. And of course, all of it is under the guise of the California Teachers Association. In fact, uh, schools and communities first, yes, on Prop 15 is, is another one of those sleight of hands. Hey, let's do it for the kids. Let's, let's make sure that we have enough money for public education, even though 47 cents out of every single dollar spent in California for everything the state does goes toward public education. If this passes, if Prop 15 passes, you better bet they will come back in a short period of time with a companion proposition that will eliminate all of the protections across the board for everybody. And when that happens, you think there's exodus from California now? Uh-huh. Just wait. This is bad, bad business. It's not only bad for business, it's bad for families in California. Let's not punish small business owners any more than they've already been punished because of COVID. Let's not drive businesses out of the state. Let's do the right thing and tell Sacramento, live within your means. And if you need more money, start figuring out where you can reduce some overhead. How about some of those big administrative costs to start? Recommendation would be a no vote on Proposition 15. That's no on Prop 15. All right, we're here at 515. We're going to have time to maybe dive into one more before we dive into uh, traffic for you. Let's, um, here's an easy one. Prop 24, amending consumer privacy laws. Um, this will allow all of us to be protected from businesses that would otherwise want to share our personal information. Um, this would limit a business's use of so-called sensitive personal information, including your location, your ethnicity, health information, etc., etc. A vote on the measure means this. Existing consumer data privacy laws and rights will be expanded in California. Businesses would be required to meet privacy requirements a new state agency in the State Department of Justice would share responsibility for overseeing the enforcing of state consumer privacy laws. Given how much of our information gets hacked every year, anything we can do to better strengthen our privacy rights, I think is a great idea. So the recommendation here on Prop 24 is a yes vote. All right, at 5.15, we're going to step aside, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about the... Horrific roller coaster ride on Wall Street as pipeline continues. Get a look at And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Investors hoping the worst is finally behind us may not be enough to avoid what has been undoubtedly perhaps the worst week since October of 2008. To help put perspective on where we are today and potentially where things may be headed and ultimately the impact on your financial life, Pat Fitzucci. And, and Pat, we often talk about the roller coaster ride experience on Wall Street and not to try to analyze it day by day, but the news has been blaring this message so loudly, it's almost hard to avoid. Yeah, having lived through 2008, and you and I were on the air every day during that period, this issue makes 2008 look like child's play. And a thousand point drop or gain 
in successive days, or sometimes in the morning it's up a thousand, and by closing bell it's down a thousand. And so we were kind of scratch our head and say, okay, what is going on? And I think we're inundated with so many COVID nineteen stories. I'm not sure if half of them are true and half of them are manufactured stories. But in China, the number of cases has declined, continues to be pretty severe reaction in the U.S. So we're seeing some pretty radical decisions that doesn't seem to compute, Craig. I'm not sure if I'm looking at life through rose-colored glasses or if it's just, wait a minute, there's something that we need to look at here. And I think a lot of investors who are trying to wrap their arms and minds around what's happening here, when we're just basically making investment decisions, buy-sell decisions on purely the emotion or the fear of the moment? Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, right, Craig. And what started out as a biological problem, and yes, you've seen the financial markets slow and drop dramatically. This country cannot afford another couple trillion dollars in debt. And so now we're going to turn a biological problem into a biological and a financial problem because now we're going to dig ourselves such a deep hole and the airlines and the cruise lines get billions of dollars and we're printing money like free. And that $22 trillion and change before this crisis started, my goodness, you know, at, at these low interest rates, we could afford the interest payment. But when they go back to some normal level of 4 or 5% and we wake up and we've solved the COVID-19 problem, but we've dug such a deep hole for the country, my fear is now we've got a much more bigger lingering headache that some aspirin or some immunizations cannot cure. And, of course, the concern with this is while the economy was running on all eight cylinders nice and healthy, we really in Washington weren't good squirrels at putting away money for a rainy day and paying down the federal debt. And now we've gone from a deficit that certainly was exacerbated by the 2008-2009 decline, now besieged by what's taking place today. And along with that, of course, a lot of talk of different market sectors wanting some help. Tourism, airline industry, hotels. To be sure, this impact is widespread. But is there some concern here, Pat, as we're all seemingly overreacting, including Washington, D.C., that we could be eventually, as I think you're suggesting, digging ourselves a deeper hole later on with such a significant amount of indebtedness? Yeah, this is becoming uh, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more the market goes down, the market market will go down. As we've talked about many, many times, the algorithms that the computers have been programmed to sell when, when a certain stock hits a certain price, and it just exacerbates itself and continues to sell. So we've got to be careful those circuit breakers are turned on at the appropriate time. But clearly, we've gone way far down the road here with this, and I'm concerned about the health of the economy once the health of our citizenry improves. And I think therein lies that tightrope that we walk in terms of trying not to let the economy go into a long-term depression but the question is, can it sink into a depression? And, and now we're looking at years and years of financial health and what may have triggered a virus into this mess. It's going to take a whole lot of prudence and care and, and sacrifice to dig out. Think of what it took to get out of the uh, 1929 depression. It was a decade, Craig. And so we don't want to dig ourselves too deep a hole financially to uh, cure a biological problem. Our host, Pat Vitucci, 
providing some analysis of the events of the day, their impact on your financial life, and certainly, Pat, as we try to make sense of Wall Street's reaction to the coronavirus, the reaction by Washington, D.C. to Wall Street, we begin to see a bit of a trickle effect here. Now, you made a reference, Pat, to the Great Depression just before the break. And, of course, there was a fundamental difference coming out of the Great Depression as we moved to World War II, and there's been references to this being like a war, that there was a shift in production from making civilian appliances and civilian automobiles to tanks and airplanes So it wasn't as if industry was shut down, it just shifted. What kind of a long-term impact can this possibly have on supply chain and demand? And certainly if people aren't working, they're not making money. Could we see a ripple effect here because the reaction to the coronavirus has been potentially an overreaction? It's really hard to imagine to get all these industries back up to speed. It's a revolutionary thought that we haven't seen Frankly, in our our lifetime, I mean, in 1929, things came to a screeching halt. We didn't have the level of sophistication of technology back then. And so getting all these systems back up to speed, it kind of reminds me of the Y2K issue. Remember, we were all nervous about when the clock turned into the new century. Software systems weren't going to work and water systems and electric grids and the world was going to stop. Well, this is the same kind of scenario where these systems will need to be recalibrated and restarted. We've never seen anything like this. And so it's a little frightening to think of, are we sophisticated enough and will it take a lot of time to get these systems back up to play? And most importantly, the employment numbers to make this happen and the skills and the talents to bring that all that back on board if we literally shut down for x number of months it's a mind-numbing idea that we can't even contemplate i mean it's almost sounds like an apocalypse i think we've got to slow things down and, and be calm about and be deliberate about some of these decisions before we go too far down the road to just locking all the doors of every industry in the country. Let's spend a quick moment, if we can, talking about the elephant in the room, and that is the fact that we're in an election year. Can some of this reaction be tied into that, where you've got various vested interests here in the outcome, negatively or positively, of all of this, that may be perceived as either a boost or a hindrance to either party's aspirations for the presidency and control of Congress. I hate to be cynical and think that way, but I think you're probably touching on a real issue that, you know, let's face it, Democrats were struggling to find kind of a middle-of-the-road candidate settling on Vice President Biden. But politics, let's face it, plays a big role in the grand scheme of things. Again, there's a lot of competing interests here, and I would hope at the end of the day the most important interest, and that is the health and welfare of the American people, would be held first and foremost. You want some insights perhaps as to what exactly is the right formula for you, where you should be making the best choices in relationship to that retirement that you've always dreamed of? Well, it's easy enough to take advantage of that complimentary financial health and retirement plan review, ideally so here at the start of the fourth quarter, even if you just do it to get a second opinion. Call today to schedule your appointment, 888-PLAN-WISE. That's 
P-L-A-N-W-I-S-E, or easier still, you can schedule your appointment online, and that can be had safely in any of the Bay Area offices of Vitucci and Associates with social distancing or even over the phone or on the computer. Again, go to DontInvestAndForget.com to schedule your no-obligation appointment today. That's DontInvestAndForget.com. And our lights to Pat Vitucci for that update here at 5.30. Speaking of updates, let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, with COVID-19 cases spiking in many parts of the United States, the daily death toll almost double of any other country. And looking so far at uh, some 230,000 Americans who have lost their lives, the stress related to all of not just the COVID impact, but the impact on finances, as we were discussing a moment ago with Pat Vitucci, and add into that the fact that we are facing one of the most pivotal elections of our lifetime in just five days. Is it any wonder that the American Psychological Association has released a new study that fully finds 70% of U.S. adults are indicating that the presidential election is a significant source of stress in their lives. And of course, stress factors related to just everyday living are there all the time. A big part of it is simply how we manage it, how we respond to it. So what about you? Are you managing it? Or does the anxiety of everything going on around us today beginning to simply grip you with fear to the point where you're losing sleep? Well, if that's the case, then my next guest tonight's got some insights. Dr. Greg Jans, of course, is a best-selling author of more than 25 books on topics that range from addiction to depression and eating disorders. He is the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. And one of his um, books specifically to the topic, published by Rose Publishing, is called Seven Answers for Anxiety. And Dr. Greg Jans, always a privilege to have you join us. So good to be with you, and anxiety is off the top. Wow, isn't it ever? But I saw that story about the the APA saying 70% of Americans are saying they're dealing with anxiety related to the election, and I thought, yeah, let's dash in a little bit of the COVID-19 and all of the volatility on Wall Street and concerns about their, their savings and retirement, and is it any wonder Americans are going nuts? Well, yes, we've had a series of plagues, you might say. <laughs> so it's been one thing after the next over the last six months. It, you know, it's kind of a purgatory. It's a pandemic purgatory. In other words, people don't want to go back to where they were. It's an uh, uncertain future. And that really makes for all-time high anxiety and depression rates. Certainly any one major life event can bring about feelings of depression and anxiety. Maybe it's a sudden death in the family, loss of employment, something major of that sort. But as you point out, Dr. Jans, 
for many Americans, it's been sort of just the cumulative total, the cumulative impact of multiple events that's beginning to sort of weigh down on them. And I guess then at the end of the day, the big question is uh, not that these events happen, because we know life happens and sometimes these things are just simply unavoidable, though certainly with a pandemic you'd like to be able to, to manage it better. But that said, uh, is it more the, the sense of the cumulative impact on our mental well-being that creates such degrees of anxiety and then too maybe our inability to understand how to cope with it or respond to it? Well, yes. And what we know, first of all, anxiety means I have physical symptoms. It's like a step beyond worry. My, I may have sweaty palms, my heart rate's up, I may be waking up in the night kind of gasping for air, having a little panic attack in my sleep. So anxiety always carries with it physical symptoms. This is why we're seeing so many people pushed kind of to the edge of despair. And this means that uh, we're seeing these addiction rates, alcohol cells, now depending on where you live, but anywhere 500 to 600 percent uh, in the alcohol cells. Addiction is going at very high rates. And so there's a, pi a price to pay for what we've done and where we are. Now, I'm curious, from your perspective, uh, are there times when anxiety can be helpful? And, and I couch that question in terms of, for example, pain receptors. Nobody likes to feel pain, but if you're about to place your, your open palm on the coil of a stove and you get a little bit of a singe and you pull your hand back suddenly in pain, you, you've, you've essentially, in that pain receptor, reacted and preventing yourself from experiencing even more significant pain and damage to your hand. So that's a case where, under certain circumstances, the experience of pain can be helpful in preventing us from, from uh, experiencing worse injury. Is there any degree to which anxiety can be helpful in that same regard? Well, anxiety can be a natural response to uh, fear or something that's happened suddenly. But I think our concern is carrying anxiety chronically, carrying anxiety over the long, a long term, uh, even the physical health, issues related to that and immune deficiencies. So we know that anxiety, uh, the body's not designed to carry it. But we will have moments. It's, it's human beings. Things will happen. You may receive a diagnosis that prompts anxiety. So it's part of the human condition, but we can't stay locked in it. We're visiting today with Dr. Greg Jantz. He is a best-selling author, more than 25 books on a variety of topics, including the one we're discussing briefly today, Seven Answers for Anxiety. Uh, toward that end, certainly a, a good way, like uh, my example, Dr. Jantz, of pulling your hand quickly away from the hot coil on the stove is to, to remove the source of anxiety. But easier said than done when the source is the upcoming election and fear and dread over the outcome or talk about civil unrest and things of this sort that we're reading in the news, the impact of 
of COVID. I just got a note earlier from a friend of mine who said, pray for my father. He doesn't have COVID, but he's been diagnosed with heart failure and pneumonia, and I'm fearful for him being in the hospital. So if we can't control the stressors around us that's contributing to that anxiety reaction, how do we manage the anxiety itself? Well, one of the things we've got to look at, where's our point of focus? For some, they put the point of focus on the election. That is the, and they're totally consumed, obsessed. That is their point of focus that uh, dictates I'm either happy or unhappy because of this. So if we keep our point of focus and all the people around us are, are negative, it's easy to slide into negative right now, but um, everything is negative, um, that's going to be a real emotional drainer. And negativity breeds more negativity. So I think the point of focus, I've got to put it back on what, what does God say? Um, what am I doing to renew my mind? How am I caring for myself? Because we can get in a stronghold of fear, so to speak, mm. uh, because there is a spiritual side to this. In fact, as you suggest, uh, even though we may be dealing with the 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 physical outward signs of the body's reaction, the mind's reaction to whatever stress point that might be that's causing the anxiety, the real answer, the root answer here is to take a look at the spiritual dynamic of what's going on then, you're saying. Yes, we do need to look at that. Fear is the great paralyzer. It creates self-doubt, causes us to doubt, well, God there, is God's word true? So fear sets in those seeds of doubt, and they can grow and grow. And that's why I say when anxiety has hit you and you have physical symptoms, uh, we need to respond to that. We talked earlier in the the season here, uh, probably long before, just around uh, the uh, the midpoint of the year in relationship to COVID. And one of the pieces of advice that you shared for people that were sort of on COVID information overload was to back away from the TV set, put down the newspaper, <laughs> stop searching every website, and just disconnect a little bit because that sensory overwhelm of information uh, can be so contributory to panic and fear and anxiety. Uh, things like the election, that, that's kind of hard to avoid. Even if you decide to turn off the TV set, you look out the front door, there are all the lawn signs for the candidates. Um, it, it's an injustice almost to have you on for just a short period of time here today, Dr. Jantz. But in the moment that remains, I'm wondering if you can maybe share some insights as to how we can better manage our anxiety, maybe our collective anxiety as it relates to the elections. Sure. One of the things that we need to look at is Am I self-absorbed with fear? Am I self-absorbed with all these things going on? Or have I moved it over and I'm doing self-care? Self-care spiritually, self-care physically. You know, take your favorite, take some Bible verses, future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. Put it on a three-by-five card. I want you to go out and go for a walk at least 20 minutes at a time, twice a day. I want you to say that verse out loud. I want you to do some things that begin to renew our mind. And in renewing the mind, you'll start to affect the spirit. But this is so important for us to understand that the renewing of the mind is key to good self-care. Otherwise, we get what I call ants, automatic negative thoughts. 
And and to to really, as you say, reshift the focus, disconnect and unplug as much as we humanly possibly can from many of the stressors, you know, not to be obsessed and watching the news hour after hour. Yeah. And, and then I guess, too, that sense of hope. I mean, you know, it, it would seem to me that that anxiety thrives in an environment of hopelessness. And so a renewed sense of hope that even as we face all of these issues, none of this surprises God, none of this is bigger than God, and at the end of the day, we as a nation, and even as individuals, if we think about our own life experience, have probably faced bigger, maybe even significantly worse challenges, and have ultimately been able to survive and weather the storm. And I, you know, I, I hate to be cliche-like here, but I think some faith and trust in God um, as a means of understanding we will get through this, this will someday end, and it will be past us, can be a tremendous way to, to sort of change our thinking as we shift the focus on the obsession of the thing that we're concerned over and think more about the Lord. Well, thank you so well said, Craig. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Jantz, I, again, I, I wish we had more time here today, but we hope that the, the nuggets of insight that you've shared with listeners have been hopeful. I will, again, um, encourage you to check out Dr. Jantz's website, aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. This book that we've touched on around the periphery today, Seven Answers for Anxiety, these are issues that a lot of people deal with, not just during the cycle of what's going on with COVID or the elections, but throughout life. Many things can be stressors. Many things can be points of creating that emotional, that physical response called anxiety to trying and troubling experiences and times. You need to understand how to better manage it and many insights available for you inside Seven Answers for Anxiety. It's published by Rose Publishing. And again, you can get more information and order the book online by going to aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Our thanks to best-selling author, the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, Dr. Greg Jans, for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. 547 on the clock. Let's get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if the response to the markets related to um, the lack of additional bailout money from Congress isn't enough to scare you or the upcoming elections and the accompanying anxieties we just discussed with Dr. Jantz doesn't scare you. Um, How about the fact that Saturday is Halloween? And it raises the question, and I think it's one that we, we try to answer for you every year, and that is based on many of the trappings related to Halloween, you know, it can either be regarded as sort of a a harmless, uh, fun distraction for kids, a great way to run around, meet all the neighbors, and collect some free candy, though that certainly in the age of COVID-19 will be much different this year. But you can't deny the fact that there's also a spiritual dynamic to all of this. When we speak of uh, the dead, the beyond, grave sites, skeletons, all of that. And I think it then should lead to a question that every Christian parent needs to ask for themselves. And that is whether or not it's necessarily the healthiest thing for their child to participate 
in Halloween with all of his trappings, and if so, what does that look like? Well, to lend some insights, we're joined by the author of a new book called Playing with Fire, released by Thomas Nelson Publishers. He is a, an evangelistic journalist. In fact, he's worked in evangelism and journalism for more than two decades. You have perhaps uh, seen his appearances on a number of major television news outlets. He's also served as the faith and culture editor of The Blaze and senior editor of Faithwire. And Billy Hallowell, good to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. An appropriate last name for <laughs> for some of our discussion here today, with a bit tongue tongue firmly planted in cheek. Um, this raises interesting questions because, as we we may look at the fun side, quote unquote, of Halloween, but can we really do that, Billy? In your opinion, all the while ignoring the clear spiritual dynamics of this that just rides very slightly below the surface. You know, I think, yeah, and I think one of the things that we have to do when it comes to Halloween is we have to be really clear with our kids. Uh, you know, I'm a parent, and I've got two kids, about what it really is, what the roots are. And I think we get really blinded by the fact that a lot of what we do during Halloween season is, you know, pumpkins and painting pumpkins and carving them and getting candy and going trick-or-treating. You know, I think that there has to be a real distinction, and we see this. And different Christians have different ways of observing it. Some go to harvest festivals at their church. You know, at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing on Halloween, whether it's an event at your church or trick-or-treating in your neighborhood, you're still celebrating Halloween. So I think the important thing is, A, let your kids know what this is really about, and let them know the difference between Halloween as the world celebrates it and then Halloween as, or maybe the quote-unquote holiday as you plan to commemorate it, or maybe you don't. But I think that's really important, A, to be very clear about that. And really, when I say be clear, letting them know that there are evil roots, that the roots of this are not are not good. And I think a lot of us, you know, even as adults, we don't know that history. And so it's important to brush up on it, understand it. And really also at the same time, and this is something I really try to do through my book, Playing With Fire, is to dive into understanding what evil is and making sure that they know that. And this isn't just a one-time conversation. It's, it's a conversation, really, that's ongoing, because as much as we talk about the good, which is the core of our faith, right, we have to also talk about the other side, because we know there is that spiritual battle that goes on. There is a dynamic in some cultures that focuses on remembrance of those that have passed on before us, and I think to the degree to which it helps us memorialize them can be a healthy thing. Uh, but there are many aspects of which Halloween kind of really takes it to to the extreme. And well, as you point out, there might be sort of the, the lighthearted, hey, let's, you know, enjoy a harvest festival and carve pumpkins and, and, and have some fun together as a family. There is a significant spiritual dark side to this. How do you go about helping children understand that. We don't want to scare them, per se, but I think far too often within the church today, we sort of, um, for, for want maybe of a better tongue-in-cheek um, uh, paraphrase here, whistle past the cemetery when it comes to the very real reality of good versus evil and and the fact that we are battling not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in high places and that there are dynamics to the the reality of evil that 
are not there for entertainment. They're not there for good, clean fun. It's real, and it's something that Christians need to be aware of. Yeah, and that's something that, I mean, I've spent the last year investigating these stories, right, and sort of looking at real-life manifestations of what you just described, the fact that there is this battle over good and evil. You look at Ephesians 6, and I had a whole new appreciation after writing Playing with Fire for Ephesians 6 because it's so easy to just brush past it, right? And it tells us that, you know, we're so consumed, essentially, with this battle over flesh, you know, people versus people and fighting with others, and there's the us versus them. But you read Ephesians 6 and really verses 9 through 13, and you look and you see that there's a much bigger spiritual battle going on over good and between good and evil. And when you start to read deeper into that, you see, hey, you need to take up the shield of faith. What does that mean? It means having a strong faith. It means living the day in and day out as a Christian. And so we need to be modeling that for our kids to get back to your question, because I think the connection there is that at the end of the day, how do we protect ourselves? How do we avoid evil? How do we do the right thing? Well, it's getting up every day, praying, reading Scripture, having that connection to God. You know, this isn't rocket science. That's the protection um, that we can have, you know, to avoid these pitfalls. But this is very real stuff, and I think we don't want to scare our kids. But one thing that I picked up on very quickly, I have an 8-year-old and I have a 5-year-old, and let when my eight-year-old was seven, we'd be driving down the road during Halloween season, and some bloody thing would be on the side of the road in someone's yard, you know, statues and all sorts of things. And she knew. It freaked her out. She knew that wasn't good, right? She, she could sense that. And so I think kids are, are really perceptive, and when we don't find the right way to talk to them about these things, they're seeing them, and our silence, you know, can speak volumes. And so... You know, for me, we don't allow our kids to do anything that is evil or bloody, and I think I think it's important to not entertain that. I mean, this is a holiday that was really essentially founded because of the fact that there was a belief that it was the, the thinnest veil on Halloween between the living and the dead. And we see today people still trying to communicate with the dead. I mean, this is part of—it's been part of the human experience really since the beginning of time, and— it's really uh, really a dangerous thing to just sort of, you know, nonchalantly take it lightly. So we've got to have the conversation. Others are going to have the conversations. I mean, my, my kid came home and said, you know, what's Bloody Mary? You know, and this is this old folklore thing that, that when I was a kid people would talk about. And, it, you know, it's, it's sort of this ghostly figure. And so we had a conversation about it. I said, you don't play around with that. You don't mess with these things. So we've, we've got to be smart about that. Now, does that mean you can't do anything for Halloween? I think there's a debate about that, and, and a lot of Christians intensely, you know, fight about it. When I was a kid, we would go out some years, other years, right? And um, so there, there wasn't always a consistency to that. So I think it's important to be consistent and, and act on what you feel convicted on, but avoid the, the way that the world celebrates Halloween is not the way that Christians should be celebrating Halloween. And at the end of the day, it really can be an important teaching moment. Children need to understand uh, the broader issues here, of course, to to age appropriateness. Uh, that you know, while there's a degree to which all of this is sort of couched as you know harmless fun, there are aspects of it that are the last thing from being fun nor harmless. 
And so to use this not to be a, you know, uh, what, what, what would the kids say, party pooper or throw rain on their parade? I mean, there, there are things that you can do that are safe and wholesome for them, while at the same token, taking this as an opportunity to teach them some important lessons. The book, again, is called Playing With Fire, and you can get information about ordering it by going to playingwithfirebook.com. It's easy to remember, playingwithfirebook.com, newly published by Thomas Nelson. And, Billy, we'll have to come get you back on the program and we can go into this a little bit deeper because, again, this is an aspect that I think far too often uh, mainstream Christianism these days likes to kind of skirt over this. You know, we don't want to deal with evil. We don't want to deal with sin. We want all the happy, positive things of Christianity. And um, we need to understand really the dynamic of what is going on here and uh, and understand also how to teach our children so that they will grow up uh, with a sense of, of, of fear and admonition of the Lord in a good way and a balanced biblical perspective on the matters of good and evil. Billy Hallowell, evangelistic journalist, the book again called Playing With Fire, available online by going to playingwithfirebook.com. That's playingwithfirebook.com. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's see what your uh, traffic is like on this Thursday ride home from the KFAX Traffic Center. 